You're listening to a message from Stonegate Church in Midlothian, Texas. For more information about Stonegate and additional audio resources, visit Stonegate-Church.com. Um, uh, as you're uh, having a seat, go ahead and open up to First Peter chapter 4. Um, and if you were here, I just kind of want to get a poll. Um, if you were here last week and heard uh, Rodney uh, just knock it out of the park, uh, how many times did you say, I think I'm in Cruddy Valley? Um, anyone, or is that just me? Like, I, there were times I was like, oh man, this, this is Cruddy Valley. We're going to get the family mountain. And, um, uh, but yeah, beautiful picture of uh, what it means as a community to walk together and, and where to go. And we're going to see a little bit of a picture of that um, in, in 1 Peter chapter 4. And where we are in 1 Peter chapter 4 is we get to a place where Peter has dealt a lot with suffering and that it comes to all people. Suffering is not something just for the lost. It's not something just for the saved. It comes to all people in all places. There's suffering and there's pain. But there's a big difference in how a Christian should walk through suffering than how an unbeliever should walk through suffering. And so we get to this place in 1 Peter chapter 4, and he erupts in a prayer that you would get a new way of thinking when you walk in suffering. And so one thing that is just presented, it's proposed that all sin, all sin, whatever you could think of, it's addictive in nature and it presents itself as a saving medication to our pain and to our suffering. And so just think about that for a second. All sin is addictive in nature. And so that means sin is not just bad things that you do. Sin is things that are good that we go to for comfort and for help that we look to that they might save us that they might rescue us from the pain and the suffering that we find ourselves or from the discomfort that we are. It's something that we go to. And it's also doing bad things. I mean, don't be like, oh, I'll just do a bunch of bad things. Uh, it, it, it's both those things. It's much more pervasive than we think. And it's much more widespread. And it's much more addictive. Even to the point that it presents itself as medication to our pain and suffering. Right now, um, I've got a two-and-a-half-year-old uh, girl and a little over one-year-old girl. And um, they, uh, they have things that they think help uh, when they get hurt. They think mommy and daddy's arms help, and I want to believe it does help. Uh, that's something I'm promoting. Uh, but right now, the currency of medication in my household is Hello Kitty Band-Aids. It is Hello Kitty Band-Aid. It is presented as the thing that can cause all pain to go away. If there is a bump on the head, it demands a Hello Kitty Band-Aid. If there is bleeding from an artery, it demands Hello Kitty Band-Aid. If there is suffering that is seen, it demands a Hello Kitty Band-Aid. Panic happens in our house when we go to the, when we go to the cupboard and we open up and there is no Hello Kitty Band-Aids because pain persists. Our dog, we've got a, a Weimariner. He's like 100 pounds. Some say he's overweight. I say he's happy. Um, he is... He's almost nine. He's getting old. He's a big dog. He's going to live a whole, whole lot longer. He's an old man. And he is subjected to torment every day of his life. Because I have two little girls who love him. Quinn's, one of Quinn's first word was haze. And it persists. Because Liv just discovered how to say haze. And she says it all day long. And haze will endure and will endure and will endure. And then he will escape to our bedroom to hide between a dresser and another dresser. We have his place. And he squeezes in because he's happy, not fat. He squeezes into it and he lays down in the corner. And suddenly Quinn will emerge and say, where's haze? 
and we'll say, Hayes needs a break. You have dressed our 100-pound Weimariner who is all male. You have dressed him in bonnets and scarves and dresses all day long. He is tired. He needs rest. And she'll still persist. Where's Hayes? And so we'll say, Hayes is sick. He needs rest. And what I'm saying is he is sick and tired of being in a bonnet. He's a man dog. He is sick. And so she will produce a Hello Kitty Band-Aid for him and take it to him and put it on him. And he just he probably still has a scarf on his head, just looking dejected. And she presents it as this will, will, will save you. This will heal you. This will make you feel better. This will cause the pain to go away. Now, it's ridiculous. A Hello Kitty Band-Aid does not help the pain go away, but it's something that's drawing that she believes it helps the pain go away. And sin presents itself in the same way. I'm not just talking bad things. I'm talking good things that become ultimate. Sin presents itself in the same way. When we take good things and we make them ultimate things, they will make me feel better. They will give me identity. I can put my hope and my trust in them. They will rectify all this pain and suffering that is in my life. It is addictive. And so if we, if we look to different things, I mean, if we look to obvious things, such as drugs or alcohol, drugs and alcohol are addictive in nature. It's easy to see how it works. You have a horrible week at work. I mean, you are beat down. Everything you did was just enough to survive. You get to the weekend, and if, if alcohol or drugs are a false idol in your life, and they are there, they will present themselves as, you endured, and now you deserve this. And you find your hope and your solace, and you soak your pain in a bottle or in something else. But how do, I, how do we know it's addictive? It's when it doesn't just come along to medicate your pains, but it also becomes the object of celebration for what you achieve. So you could have the exact opposite week. You could have the week where you nail it at work, and everyone, when you leave the office, people are around you singing, Casey, 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 and they are singing you praises. And you go out and you would say, not this pain that I endured makes me deserve this. You would say, the hard work that I endured fortifies this for me. I deserve this. Now, I'm just, I, we don't do that with everything. Like things that, are, are, that become solace don't actually become celebration. Things that become punishment don't become celebration. I and mean, we don't do it with everything. There is this seductive nature of sin in this undercurrent that takes us to a place and the thing that causes us pain becomes the thing that we medicate to stop the pain and it becomes a celebration if we escape the pain. We don't do it with everything. I, I grew up, I, I played soccer uh, my whole life. And right now, because you're American and Texan, you laugh at me a little bit. You're like, I didn't play football. But I played soccer uh, my whole life. And uh, I had a coach, and his name was Reza Namavar. When I say his name, I get chills. Reza Namavar. He played semi-pro ball in Europe. And so he knew what he was doing. He taught mathematics and was scary when he taught mathematics because I think he minored in college in psychological warfare. 
He had a way of just looking at you and you shuddered in your spirit. And he brought something. I was convinced he made it up. I actually Googled it while I was studying and he didn't make it up. It was learned in the war trenches of psychological warfare to punish teenage boys, to produce winning soccer teams. It was called the fart lick. And I, yeah, I thought you just made it up because that's the way you feel after you run it. But it was called the fart lick. And what it was, it was interval training. And so he would set up codes 40 yards across, different lengths, depending on how angry he was, and make a square out of them. And we would get in groups, in pairs, in this long line, and we would start running. And we would come around home cone. He would yell out, two, three, four. And whatever he yelled at, you had to sprint that many sides and then keep running. His mentality was, you play soccer for 90 minutes, you should run and sprint for 90 minutes. And so we would run for 45 minutes as he would run. And if he was really twisted that day, he would yell four. And you would sprint four times around to get there. And he would look at you and smile and yell four again. And you would sprint again. And you would do it for 45 minutes. And then he'd give you a 10-minute break at, for halftime. And you're over there, you're throwing up on each other huddling out of fear, just thinking, we'll never make it. And then it's back on the line and we start the fart lick again for another 45 minutes. It was the punishment if we didn't play good on Friday. The punishment. If we didn't play good on Friday, even if we won, but we didn't play good, he would say this, I'll see you Monday. And we would shudder in fear. Now, I never, if we played awesome... I mean, if we nailed it and we, I mean, I mean, almost run rule, we nailed it. In the celebration after that, I never said, you know what we ought to do? Let's celebrate with a fart lick. I never did that. And so sin has this way of, of coming in, providing itself as the medication that will give you solace. And then when it starts becoming the source of all your pain and all your problem, it props itself up as the medication to fix that. And then at a time where you celebrate that you've escaped pain and suffering, it presents itself again as the medication and the act of celebration. And so it's addictive. It's addictive and it presents itself as something to escape pain and suffering. And it may not be alcohol or drugs for you. It could be any number of things. It could be the sense that if enough people think I'm okay, if I have enough approval from people, if they think I'm funny and witty and smart and preach good, if they think that, then I'm okay. And so when you come to a place where your frailty is exposed, where failure presents itself, if that's what you think will make you okay, you will go out to poll, the popularity poll, to find out if you're okay or not. And you can always find a group of people who say you're okay when you're not okay because they are operating under the same thing and they want you to tell them that they're okay. And so they don't really care about you. They care about them, so they're going to say you're okay. It's a horrible, dwindling effect. And so it's obvious in some things. Like if you ever get injured, like you're injured and you're trying to evaluate, do I ride this thing out or do I go to the hospital? Don't ever ask a group of guys what they think. My brother-in-law, we were out shooting rifles and it, it, he was shooting with a scope and it kicked back and it cut his eye open. And he made the foolish mistake of asking his brother and his brother-in-law, hey, you think I'm okay? And we're like, you're fine. Put some glue on it. And he super glued it shut. He should have found a mother 
a mother who actually cares about him. But so you could always find someone to say you're okay. Now, what if it's not dealing with a scar on your eyebrow? What if it's dealing with your marriage? What if you're contemplating divorce and things are tough? You can find people who say, you know what, you deserve happiness. And if you don't find those people maybe in your church, you'll probably leave that church to find people to say you're okay because it presents itself as a God. You have to have people who say you're okay. Or maybe it's not, maybe it's not approval, maybe it's just comfort. Maybe it's just comfort that there is a level of escape that you have to have. You have to escape your pain. And whatever the avenue that is, you will find it. And you will find ridiculous avenues to find it. I was watching the Food Network and I discovered there is a whole variety of foods that are called comfort foods. And as they were telling me about comfort foods, the scary thing was, it's all the food I eat. And so it's saying that people go to these foods for comfort when the pressure hits or the, you know, in other places they have a thing called winter, not here in Texas, but a thing called winter where it gets dark and dreary and cold and people are driven for comfort and they go to food for comfort. So they don't go to Jesus, who's the God of all comfort. They go to the refrigerator. And so whatever it is, we will seek comfort and it might be something outside, but an escape It might become internet, it might become movies, it might become chat rooms, it might become something where people look at you in such a way because you're a winner there. Comfort. So it may not be alcohol, it may not be people's approval, you might be on the opposite side, you don't care what people think, it may not be comfort, it might be a control thing that presents itself as the saving medication when pain comes. Control. Now, there are some people who are prone to this type of saving medication that can't save. And they're called oldest siblings. And just out of confession, we want to know who the oldest siblings are. So raise your hand. Just don't be afraid. We're going to deal with other people. No, don't be scared. Raise your hand. You're like, I don't want to. You're like, I feel like I'm losing control. Okay, raise your hand. Listen. Listen. My sister. My sister. I'm the youngest of three. I have two. My sister, Kimber. She, when she would get life out of control, when she would get in trouble from her parents, I swear she sought me to find me, to control me. I mean, she would wind up in my room just kind of looking around. Hey, what's going on around here? A lot of stuff's going on. I'm the youngest boy. I'm hiding stuff everywhere. And she's there to, I'm going to control you. And she would use like Jedi mind tricks on me. You will not tell your parents. Like, I don't know what to do. And so, I mean, it's this thing of, and so what that looks like, What that looks like, if I have areas in my life that are causing pain, if I have areas in my life that are are causing doubt in my frailty, I'll find a controlled victory. Because if I can can control this, then then I've got to be okay over here. Now, we we paint that out, and you're like, well, that, that can't help you over here. But we're looking for a medication that numbs our pain. And so it, it may not be alcohol or addiction. It may not be approval. It may not be comfort. It, it, could be tr- it could be control. It could also be a religious idea of earning God's approval. And so when pain settles in your life, the first place your mind goes is, man, I've got to get more disciplined. I've got to read my Bible more. And you won't say it, but there's underlying current underneath it, this underlining drive that says, If I read my Bible more, if I speak kinder, if I give more money, God will love me more and he'll take my pain away. I am meriting something to control God. And all these things, it's not that they're evil. 
It's that they present themselves in such a way, I can take your pain away. And so when we start off and we look at this, we saw that all sin has this addictive nature. It presents itself as a saving medication. But Peter tells us something here. Peter wants us to know it, suffering exists for all, both believer and non-believer. Everyone suffers. Everyone has pain. It exists for all. But when suffering hits the Christian's life, when, when suffering and pain hits the Christian's life, he tells us we're to run up and with, not out or in. And so when we look at that, let's look to the text. And so the first thing, it says, Since therefore Christ suffered in the flesh, arm yourself with the same way of thinking. And this is the phrase that we're going to come back, because it's a change in the way that you think about suffering. There is a way that a lost world thinks about suffering. There is a way a Christian is supposed to think about suffering. But the way we used to think, like when we were lost and we had no hope, it creeps back into us and it lures us back. But there's a different way, the two words, suffering and thinking. Thinking. Now, just for the rest of the passage, for whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin, so as to live the rest of the time in the flesh, no longer for human passions, but for the will of God. For the time that is past suffices for doing what Gentiles want to do, living in sensuality, passions, drunkenness, orgies, drinking parties, and lawless idolatry. With respect to this, they are surprised when you do not join them in the same flood of debauchery, and they malign you. But they will give an account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. For this is why the gospel was preached, even to those who are dead. That though judged in the flesh the way people are, they might live in the spirit the way God does. To the end, for the end of all things is at hand. Therefore, be self-controlled and sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. Above all, keep loving one another earnestly. Since love covers a multitude of sin, show hospitality to one another without grumbling. As each has received a gift, use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's varied grace. Whoever speaks, speak as one who speaks oracles of God. Whoever serves, serves as one who serves by the strength that God supplies in order that in everything God might be glorified through Jesus Christ. To him be the glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. And so when we look at this, the very beginning, two words that step out, suffered and thinking. And there is a way that the world pushes to medicate your suffering and your pain that is a different way of thinking than the gospel points us. And so the first way that we would say, when pain and suffering comes, don't run to self-absorption and isolation. If you're taking notes, there is a way that you would run in, that when pain comes, that you would run in for comfort or solace, that you would come in. And the way we Christianize that is we say you've got to look within and find some sort of strength so that you can walk out. But it is not a Christian idea at all. A lot of times in Christian counseling, there's a part or quote unquote Christian counseling, there's a part where you have to find an inner strength, an inner hope that you have to supply, that you have to bring to the table. And so you look within and when you don't find it, when it's not there, you fake it because you're afraid other people you don't other people would know you don't have it. And the gospel tells don't look within. And so on different sides of this, there's the idea of meditation that would come up. On one side over here, you have an Eastern religious idea of meditation, also kind of a secular idea of meditation that focuses in that you have to find some sort of strength to overcome what is outside of you. And so you look inside. 
And so sometimes that looks like this, where an Eastern mind, an Eastern mind with a religious point of view from the Eastern culture, it would be like this. You need to focus yourself in such a way that you think of nothing. That you clear your mind. The problems of this world, let's act like they don't exist, and let's find some sort of harmony in your mind. Now, now, what happened is secular philosophy has picked up and they changed it just a little bit, but they pick it up and they focus inside. Look inside. Focus inside. When pain happens, focus inside because the problem is you don't love yourself enough. Focus on your self-esteem. Now, the Bible doesn't seem to talk that way. The Bible seems to present that the majority of all your problems are because you love yourself too much. And matter of fact, the Bible would leverage you that if you would love other people the way you love yourself, relationships would flourish. And so it even comes, when we look at Ephesians 5, when when Paul is trying to tell you this is what will help your marriage, that you would have a gospel mindset, that you would forgive as Christ forgave you, the husbands, that you would sacrifice women, that you would look to your husbands with a great deal of respect, that you would do it in line with the gospel, it comes to this place in verse 28. And it says this, In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. Now that's kind of a weird way to talk. It says you should love yourself the way you love yourself. You should love others the way you love yourself. Love like you love your body. And it goes on, He who loves his wife loves himself, for no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes it and cherishes it, just as Christ does the church. Now, that, that, that demands a little bit of stop and think. We should love others and give them the same allowances that we would give ourselves. And so, specifically, it says your body. Now, I don't know if you've ever looked in the mirror and been disappointed with your body's appearance. Um, so you look at yourself and you say, I don't like the way I look. But you may say, I hate the way I look, but you still act loving toward you, even though you don't like the way you look. You still nourish your body and clothe your body. Matter of fact, you probably go out of your way to try to clothe your body in the best way to make your body look better than what it really is. And so you go to all these different places to find what would hide that. And so you look at something, you say, I don't like it. It doesn't please me. But you love it. What, what if you looked at... If you ever looked at your spouse, you said, man, I don't, I don't like the way you look. 20 years ago when I married you, radiation and gravity had not affected you in the same way it has affected you now. If you love your wife in the same way that you love your body, you would give every allowance for it. First off, you might look at yourself in the mirror and be like, you know what? Things seem to be changing around here. I mean, you might look differently at that, but it goes on. I mean, There's also been a time I've been disappointed with my body's obedience. My body obeys me less and less. I will tell my body to do things and it threatens me. It says, if you do that, I will hurt you. (laughs) And so it doesn't obey me. And so if I can give my body allowances and comfort it and feed it and nourish it when it doesn't obey me, what if I had the same outlook toward my spouse? What if when my spouse, when, when Kinsey, you know, didn't obey me, which, believe it or not, that happens. I, I got bad ideas sometimes. When that happens, what if, when I felt disrespected, what if I gave all the same allowances I gave myself? Because I love myself. 
It's a self-centered, I love myself, I put myself before everything, at my default, I love myself. And there's also a place where I look at myself, I look at where my body is, and I say, well, this is what I got to work with. Might as well do everything I can to make it better. And so Paul says, what, what, if, you looked, what if you looked at your spouse in the same way, and you said, this is what we've got. What if we celebrated God's mercy in this? Because Jesus looks at his bride, the church, and he says, this is what I got. I'm going to express my love and it's going to have this beautiful change. And so the Bible presents, it is not this idea that you need to love yourself more. The Bible presents, you have a self-love. And so you need to stop looking within. The Bible presents that there is a Christian meditation that, that, that takes God's truth and it takes it within and it focuses on it by pushing all other things aside, by trying to train your mind. I'm not going to think about what I have to do tomorrow, what I need to be doing now, what I did get done yesterday that I have to do now. I'm not going to think about this. I'm going to think about this one truth. And I'm going to see how it affects all of my life. And so when we talk about gospel centrality, we want you to look at this truth. The truth that Jesus saw to the very, very bottom of your soul and saw all the wickedness of you, all the things that you hide, all the things that you're scared of other people know they won't love you. He saw it. He sees more than what you know is there. And he loved you in a way you could never imagine. And so there's a different way of thinking. I can walk out in strength. And so it says, don't look in. Don't look in. And I, I, would, I would just, just kind of on a side, um, these two forms of meditation, you got this one of kind of clear your mind and, and don't think anything, and this one that really focus your mind and, and really think about what, what that truth, how it affects. I, I attest that this Christian idea of meditation works in almost every sphere. And this kind of secular idea of meditation never works. And so let's just take one instance. Math class. Now, math is something, if you're in school, you don't ever need it in real life, okay? Um, I mean, I was, at, I was stuck while a train was passing, and I did not stop to contemplate, okay, train X is moving from station Y at 80 miles an hour, if I was in go-kart B, how long would it take me to catch up with train X if I left five minutes afterwards moving at a billion miles an hour? All I know is it would be quick. Okay? Now, if in math your teacher presents you something you don't understand, if you go and say, man, I'm just going to clear my mind and just kind of not even think about it. I'm just wondering why you're not kind to me. I wish you'd be more kind. You will fail your math class. But if you Christianize it and you say, I don't get that, that proof or theorem, I don't understand why I have to prove it if you already gave me the answer, I don't get it. But I'm going to keep wrestling with it and working with it and trying to wrap my mind around it until I understand it. And that's, that's, what we, that's what we want you to do with the gospel. The reality of what Jesus did for you, of your identity in Christ, we want you to wrestle with it every sphere of life, where you do business, where you're home, where your neighbors are. And the, the reality that I didn't earn it, that it was given to me, it might make you live life differently. And so it's this Christian idea, and we don't look in. And the other thing, if the answer is not within, we're telling you the answer is Jesus, but there's another way you could run. When pain and suffering comes, don't run out into the world for comfort. 
We start in verse 2, and it looks at this. And so we don't run out into the world for comfort because it lies to us. It can't give us sustaining comfort. It can't give us something that sustains and hopes. And so verse 2, it says, So as to live for the rest of the time in the flesh, no longer for human passions, but for the will of God. Peter says you have a choice now. Because of what Jesus did, you have a choice to pattern about the world or to pattern yourself about Christ. You can live for the will of God or you can live for the will of your flesh. A lost world doesn't have that choice. But now that you are in Christ, you can look at the same pain and the same suffering and you can look at all the things that say that they can help. All the things that say they'll make it better. And you can either follow the passions of the flesh that lie to you, or you can submit yourself to the will of God. He says you have a choice. In verse 3 it goes on, and he's going to say, because you have been saved from these passions, you can move in a different direction, not out. Look, in verse 3 it says, for the time that is past suffices. He says, for doing what the Gentiles want to do, living in sensuality, passions, drunkenness, orgies, drinking parties, and lawlessness, and lawless idolatry. And so it says this, but it started off, but for the time that is past suffices. What happens is we don't read carefully, and we see that description, and we think about us and them. And we see only one kind of lostness, and we say, see, I have pain and suffering, and I'm so much better than them, because I don't go to those things. But what he says is for the time that has passed suffices. He says enough is enough. He's saying you used to live like this. And it might have looked different. It might have been a different list. This is just a list. But you used to live like this. And you know it doesn't work. And he says, so in your Christian life, where you are now, say enough is enough. I know it fails me. When I have a moment of clarity, when people look at my life and they say, why do you run back to that? I know it fails me. Say enough is enough. I need a new identity. I need a strong break between me and sin. And so it picks it up there. Now look at verse 4. It says, with respect to this. And so with respect to this, he's saying... Christians, don't participate. Don't run to the same things that offer satisfaction or the same things that offer to keep you safe or the same things that offer to make you feel better. Run to something different. Don't run out to worldly passion. Run to something different. Don't be enslaved to your flesh. And he says, the world is going to see that and they are going to be confused. Look at this. It says, it takes it to this whole new level. With respect to this, they are surprised when you do not join them in the same flood of debauchery. And they malign you. Now that is a weird word. I bet you did not use that this week. They malign you. I bet you didn't use the root word that comes from, which is blaspheme. And so Peter comes and he says, In this world, there are two ways to worship. You can worship Jesus and Jesus alone or you can worship idols. And it says, it is nothing less than a religious matter. Nothing less than a worship matter. They don't understand why you don't bow down and worship these idols that say they will make you feel better, or they will keep you safe, or they will protect you from harm. They don't get it. Why would you not come over here and worship? And the description, there's, there's a small description. It says in in drinking parties, in in idolatry, in orgies, in drunkenness. And see, we get so fixated on, on those type of descriptions that we don't realize that it goes much, much deeper. Anything 
that is good, would elevate it to be ultimate, when I go to it to save me, whether it's an identity or a relationship or my family, if I trust it to give me identity and to save me, it becomes this corrosive tyrant that will never satisfy, even though it promises, I will keep you safe. And so he says, because we've been saved from these past, don't run to them. And then it goes, it's nothing less than worship. Now look at verse 5 and 6. He says, but ultimately they will give an account to him who's ready to judge the living and the dead. For this is why the gospel was preached. Now, when it says, for this is why the gospel was preached, it's one word. Eugelion. And it's presented here in the passive tense. And so a better way, or maybe a more concise way to translate this, it might say literally, for this is why it or he was preached. This is why Jesus was talked about. This is why you heard the good news of Jesus, that you could be saved from these idols that would master you, that would promise what they can't give, that would deaden you to the reality that you are a sinner in need of a Savior, that they might tell you that you can earn it. They might tell you if you just get a little bit better or you resist the temptation that you're okay. Jesus was preached to save you from that. And so it starts to build. And then it builds it. Look, it says, even to those who are dead. Now, where it says that the gospel is preached, even to those who are dead. Uh, Roddy dealt with that a few weeks ago. What does that mean? And what I can be positive, sure it means. It might have some other meaning, but we can be absolutely positive. But by the way, the scriptures present it. You are dead without Christ. And you are not made alive until the Spirit tells you about Jesus. And so he's saying, Enough is enough. You lived like this. You thought like this. You handled pain and suffering like this. But Jesus was preached to you. And you now have hope. And so, would you not run in to try to find some strength that's not there? Would you stop running out to some some sort of passion or strength that you think is going to medicate your pain and suffering? Because it can't. And would you run up to Jesus? And so what we see, the third thing, when pain and suffering comes, the gospel leads us to run up to the heart of Jesus for comfort. And we, we, we jump back to verse 1. And so look back at verse 1. It says, Since therefore Christ suffered in the flesh, arm yourself with the same way of thinking. It says there is a gospel way of thinking that deals with pain and suffering that does not push you in to find strength that will fail you. That's not there. It won't push you out to deaden the pain with something, whether it's something we would look at as evil or something that we'd look at good. It runs up to Jesus. It runs to the gospel, the God who gives, the God who forgives, the God who died, the God who made you alive, the God who stands at the right-hand side of the Father and prays for you. He prays for you. There's a different way of thinking. And so, what, what, what's that way of thinking? If you were going to read something later this week to really express that, it would be Matthew 26, where in Matthew 26, Jesus finds himself in a garden, a stone's throw away from his disciples, but all alone. He goes to his disciples, he's about to be betrayed, and he tells them, please pray for me. I am overcome with pain and grief. Please pray for me. And he goes away and he prays. And he comes back to find them sleeping. His friends failed him. 
And so he says, please wake up and pray for me. I am in anguish. And he goes and prays. And he comes back and his friends fail him again. Something outside of him failed again. And they're asleep. And he says, please pray for me. And he goes and he prays. It says he sweats blood of great anguish. And he goes to the Father and he's looking at the crucifixion. He's looking at what's ahead. He's going to be abandoned. He's going to be betrayed. He's going to be whipped and flogged. He's going to be beaten. The people will come around him. They will rip his beard out. They will put a crown of thorns around his head. And they will hit him in the head of the club. And they will mock him. And he's going to go to the cross. And there he will hang and he will suffocate. As he dies, but the sins of all the world will be laid upon him. And he will experience life without his father. And the father will reject him and turn him away. Though he didn't do anything wrong, he became sin for us. So we might have the righteousness of God. And he looks and he says, God, I don't want to drink your wrath. There's got to be another way. I don't want this pain and suffering. And I don't want to walk in that pain and suffering. And he says, there's got to be another way. But he armed himself with a gospel way of thinking that he looked at his father and he said this, you're all knowing, so I know you know the pain I'm in. I know you are not oblivious, 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 that's not a word. I know you are not oblivious to what I'm feeling. I know you are here because your knowledge is not a textbook knowledge. It is an experiential knowledge. You know, I know you know. I know you are all powerful because you are omnipotent. I know you could change this. You could do anything. If you don't want this for me, you could take it away. It is not beyond your reach. I am not set to endure something that you wish you could stop but can't stop. You could stop it. So I know you know about it. I know you could stop it. But I know you are benevolent. I know you are good. And so if this is the pain and suffering you've brought to me, even when I don't understand it, I can trust you and walk in it because I trust your heart. And so when Jesus came, when he saw suffering and he saw pain and the son of God said, there's got to be another way. But he said, not my will, but your will. He said, God, I trust you. All my senses say this is a bad way to go, but I trust you because you could have stopped it, but you didn't. And you have promised that this would be for your glory and for my joy. And so I will walk in it. It is a complete different way of thinking. It is a way that looks at the reality of where we are. It doesn't try to act like it's not there. It doesn't escape inside to paint the reality something different. It looks at the reality of where we are. It acknowledges real pain and real suffering. And there's a part where we, we wither. Psalms 1 says, A man of righteousness like a tree planted before a stream of waters. In drought, his leaf withers, but it doesn't die because he's pulling water from something else. Not just the circumstances. It's pulling water from something deep. And we're able to walk through and pull from the deep, nourishing water of the gospel. And so we feel pain and we feel affliction, but we have hope because we see what Romans tells us. We see what Romans tells us. And I'm going to keep saying that until I find what Romans tells us. We see what Romans tells us, that He did not spare His own Son, but gave Him up for us all. How will He not give us everything graciously? If God wouldn't keep, if God didn't withhold his son from us, 
How can we believe He's not being gracious to us? He was so gracious then. And so could it be that that pain and suffering is some sort of God's violent grace and that we can be in it and we can walk in it because we say, I trust Jesus. Because if He was going to give up on me, He would have given up 2,000 years ago on that cross as all my sin was laid upon Him. I trust Jesus. It's a different way of thinking. And then, this is, this is where I was going to stop, but we see this beautiful thing, this beautiful gift. This beautiful gift that's within this. In verse 1 it goes on, it says, Forever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin. And right there, you just got nervous because you said, man, I still sin. I still fail. I still run to things that might be good, but I treat them as ultimate. I still fail. But what it's saying is it's holding it in a past condition. It's this past event that has a present reality. And so what, what commentaries write about this is Peter's describing an event that made a new situation. It's an act of suffering that ended sin and suffering as it was. And so one day it will end it altogether, but we live in a time that sin and suffering for the Christian is ended as it was because of what Jesus did, but we still live in it because it's a new thing and there will be a day where it will be no more. And so as we live in it, it means there has been a decisive break between you and sin. It is no longer your master. Jesus is your master. And so there's a part where Paul says, stop bowing and worship to this phony God that has no power over you. Look to the cross. Look to Jesus. And then he gives us his incredible gift. And so he says, don't, when pain comes, don't run in. There's not strength to withstand there. When pain comes, don't run out to the passions that your flesh would say. This will satisfy. This will deaden the pain. When pain comes, run up to Jesus. And then it says, when pain and suffering comes, the gospel leads us to run with Christian community. Now look at the end of this prayer. Just read it with me. In verse 7, it says the end of all things is at hand. That means when Jesus left this earth, the end times came. And there's a part, whatever your eschatology believe, it doesn't matter that we are preparing for His second coming and He's promised to come back. And so it says this, the end of all things is at hand, therefore be self-controlled and sober-minded. He says there's a different way to live. He, he, he juxtaposes that to this idea of drunkenness and licentiousness. He says, let your life be marked with something different because you have a greater hope than the deadening medication that, that, that substance could offer. You have a greater hope. It goes on. It says, for the sake of your prayers, above all, verse 8, above all, keep loving another earnestly. Sincere love covers a multitude of sins. And so he changes and he says, there's a type of community that lives about themselves and there's another community that I'm creating in this world because of what Jesus has done. And it's a reflection of the Trinity. It's a reflection of something beautiful. And it says, it's a community that covers sins. It's a community that when they see your sins, they give you a break and they don't give you a break in the way that you walk in it, but they don't hold it against you and walk away. You can show your sins to them. You can show who you really are. And it says their love covers a multitude. And they love you and accept you because they're reflecting the gospel and they know that they can show you who you really are and who I really am. And there's an element in the gospel that covers it. That says, yes, you're wicked. Yes, I'm wicked. Yes, we fail. But Jesus has come to make new life. And so then it goes on and gets real practical. Verse 9. Show hospitality to one another without grumbling. 
It's this picture that there's a community that welcomes lost and saved in and shows this beautiful example of what it means to walk in love. Open your life in such a way. Walk into people's homes. Bring them into your homes. Share life with them. Walk with them in your pain and suffering. And it says, show hospitality without grumbling. There's a hospitality that does everything when they leave. We gripe and complain. And we don't ever invite them over because they didn't help with the dishes. Don't do that kind of hospitality. It goes on, verse 10. It says, as each has received a gift, use it to serve one another as God's stewards of God's varied grace. Whoever speaks, speak as one who speaks oracles of God. Whoever serves, serve as one who serves by the strength that God supplies. And then it says this, in order that in everything God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. To Him be the glory and dominion forever and ever. When we talk about, and Rodney did a beautiful job last week of talking what it means about gospel and community and mission. When Peter is talking, he says, run up to Jesus when you're in pain and suffering. And then he says, run with believers, run in community. And it's something that we're supposed to be. And so that starts first with courage. Would I trust a community with who I really am? Would I let them see who I really am? Would I trust them that they might have an opportunity to express the gospel to me and say, we love you? It also has a courage. Will I walk with people when I see the mess of their life? That's the community that God said, run with that community. But it goes on in this phrase. You see this phrase a few times in the New Testament where it says, God's varied grace. That you would be stewardship of God's varied grace. That means, it started off by saying you've received a gift. And it's an expression of God's varied grace. And the reason why, in verse 11, it says, In order that everything may be glorified through Jesus Christ. That means God has gifted you and God has placed you. You are in a neighborhood, in a place in time, at a workplace, in a family, and should be in a Christian community that the gift that He gave you points people to the gospel. He gave it as a stewardship. And sometimes that's as simple as just showing people who you really are. With your heads down, your eyes closed, um, we'll spend some time in worship, but there's several questions I want to ask you, and you might just look at your notes, or you might just look at the Scripture, but it's a time to just kind of focus around you. The, the first question is, have I... Has that gospel been preached to me? I mean, it says what made the difference was this gospel was preached. Jesus was preached. Have I responded to this gospel? Have I said yes to Jesus? Have I said yes in such a way that I want to walk in Jesus? I want to give my life to Jesus. Because if you have not done that, the only option you have is to run to the passions of the flesh, both good things that are made ultimate and bad things that are there to destroy you. But if you have said yes to the gospel of Jesus, you now have this beautiful right as a son and daughter to run to the heart of Christ. Have you said yes to Jesus? Not yes to a new way of life, not yes to new discipline that would make you be better. I'm saying yes to Jesus. I need Jesus to save me. Only you can tell us that. 
And so if you're a Christian, are you saying yes to Jesus? Or are you still running to things inside or things outside for comfort and pain? Or are you going to the heart of Christ and say, I don't get it, but I trust your character. And so I come for you for strength. Are you running up to Jesus? And the other question is, are you, are you allowing community to run with you? Are you running in a community that loves you enough to tell you that they see patterns in your life that are dangerous? Are you running with a community that will hold you when you hurt and don't know where to go? Are you running with a community that will remind you the truth of the gospel, that God saw you, the worst thing has already been said about you, you killed Jesus? A community that would wound you when necessary and build you up with encouragement. We would beg you to get in that kind of community. And if you're in that kind of community, we would beg you to be courageous to produce that kind of community. Or are you still running out? Are you still running to find people who would say, but you want to hear that you're okay? And you know you're not okay. But there's one other really great news that is seen in this in God's community. When it says the gift that was given to you, a gift. And it says God's, that you would be a stewardship of God's varied grace. That is not just for pastors and worship leaders. That is gifts that he passes all throughout the kingdom. That is gifts that he gives businessmen, men who can seek deals. That he would say, don't just serve the bottom line. See how your business would affect the community. And bring a part of God's kingdom here. That there would be a part of grace and mercy for those who can't find jobs. Leverage what God has given you for the greater humanity. That you can show them the gospel. For those who are creative and passionate. It would be show an expression of answers to the problem that point to Jesus and Jesus alone. Stop giving self-help. If you're a homemaker, if you're a wife and you say, I don't know what you're talking about, invite people in your home. Show them your messed up family that relies on the gospel. Give them hope. They may have never seen a household that comes together for dinner, that encourages one another, that will say hard things to one another for their betterment, that will push them to trust in Jesus and not successes. That may be a gift that he's showing his very grace to this world. So run up into Jesus. Run with community because this life has pain and suffering for the believer and the unbeliever. And so where are you? Father, Lord, would you come and uh, would you help us? Jesus, would you give us um, a beautiful gift that you would let us see where we are? And Lord, the things that we might run out to or the things that we run in that aren't there, Lord, would you just expose them? And Lord, it would be a time of repentance and we would pull back center stage. Jesus and Jesus crucified and Jesus resurrected and Jesus who lives on the right hand side of the Father praying for us. The Jesus who hurts with us because he's omnipresent and he has an intimate knowledge of my pain. The Jesus who knows all, so I'm not outside of his sight. He knows all possible ends and he's chosen this pain and suffering to show his varied grace. The Jesus who suffers for me. The Jesus that I can trust his heart because of the cross 2,000 years ago. Put that Jesus center stage. And Father, we want to give you the glory.
Thank you for listening to this message from Stonegate Church, located in Midlothian, Texas. For service times, additional audio and study resources, as well as information about our church, please visit us at stonegate-church.com.